May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If you ask around whether David Taylor is a fearless evangelist for Jesus, you would probably get a similar answer to the question, does David love opera? It's a hard no. And no, he is not a fearless evangelist. But I, all, I haven't always been a chicken for Jesus. When I was 16, I joined a Baptist evangelistic ministry that for a whole week visited the Pope County Fairgrounds in the little town of Russellville, Arkansas. I'd cruise the grounds with a thick wad of tickets in my pocket, walk straight up to some unsuspecting grown-up and say, you want a free ticket? A big smile growing on their faces, they'd say, really? I'd hand them a ticket with the story of the four spiritual laws written on it. And they'd say, really? And then tell me to get lost. Undeterred, I kept handing out my fake tickets that promised a free ride to heaven. At 17, I joined a traveling drama troupe that set up camp at the first assembly of God in our small town. They were putting on a play called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. I signed up to play the role of the pastor's kid who went to hell every night in the exact same way, diving into a flurry of red crepe paper streamers buffeted by a fog machine that suggested the devil's noxious fumes while I let out the cries of a PK who got what was coming to him. Every night, the masses paraded down to the altar. Every night, I was a bad actor for Jesus. At 18, I landed at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and I did street evangelism for an entire semester without winning a single soul for Jesus. At 19, I transferred down to the University of Texas and lost my faith, all of it. And while it is seriously debatable that I was an actual evangelist as a teenager rather than just an exceedingly obnoxious kid, there isn't any doubt in my mind that I was far less afraid as a teenager than I am today of sharing the gospel with Jesus. But I'd like to be. Less afraid, that is. I would like to be like Paul's friends in Rome from our passage today. Brave to speak about Jesus in the face of certain persecution. Fearless in the face of repeated ridicule. How exactly do I become more like them and less self-conscious, less embarrassed, less afraid? The more general question that I'd like to pose for us this morning is this. What exactly enables these Roman Christians to be this way? And what enables Paul to feel joy under circumstances that are empirically joyless? Borrowing Sarah Smith's language from her sermon last week, I'd like to suggest to you that the answer is very simply gospel friendship. And within the context of today's passage, such friendship involves, one, a shared experience of the upside-down kingdom of God, and two, the experience of the non-jealous love of Jesus. So first then, the experience of the upside-down kingdom. 
Following his opening prayer in verses 9 to 11, Paul seeks to reassure the brothers and sisters back in Philippi, which is a city which is located in what is today northeastern Greece. And we can go ahead and get that. There we go. You guys can see that little red arrow pointing to it. It's just south of Bulgaria, about 200 miles due west of Istanbul and about 800 miles east of Rome. And you can put this, is there another map on there? Yeah, there you go. You can get a sense of where Philippi is and then where Rome is. You can just leave that up here. Paul seeks, in fact, to reassure them, these brothers and sisters, in light of their own fledgling experience of suffering. And they're worried that the faith has experienced a major setback on account of Paul's own imprisonment. Three times in our passage today, Paul uses the phrase, my chains, in verses 13, 14, and 17. Now, scholars tell us that this language of chains can suggest one of two things. It can suggest either an experience of being literally chained to a guard in a prison setting, or figuratively of being confined to house arrest. Either way, scholars remind us that imprisonment in the Roman time or world of Paul involved the public stigma of shame and plenty of misery. But Paul tells the Philippian believers that his imprisonment hasn't resulted in a setback for the gospel. It's resulted in the advance of the gospel. I'm not stuck in prison, he tells them. I get to be in prison. I'm not confined. I'm free. I'm chained, yes. But look who I get to hang out with. Caesar's household. They can't get rid of me. All these people who belong to the highest echelons of Roman society. Paul's agency has been taken away from him. But look who it is that God gave him as neighbors. The Praetorium which is to say the emperor's elite soldiers, next slide, who are a bit like in Star Wars, Supreme Leader Snoke's crimson-clad bodyguards, also coincidentally called the elite Praetorium Guard, the exact same term. So imagine St. Paul hanging out with these guys, and you have a good picture of who it is that he's living with day after day. In the end, however, Paul believes that they're all exactly where they need to be, even if nothing has turned out like they had originally imagined it for themselves. To live as Christ, he writes, and to die as gain. To be powerless is to be powerful with the Spirit. And this, of course, is the logic of the upside-down kingdom. It's a little bit like the world that Alice discovers in Lewis Carroll's novel, uh, Before, Back? No, no, oops. Wait. Oh, did, did, uh, am I, okay, I'm not looking at those. You got, uh, here, where, where are we? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to run a slide. Uh, yeah, go back, go back, go forward, go great. Um, okay, okay, ready? We're gonna reverse. <laughs> Uh, Supreme Leader, Snoke, you get the picture. Okay, here we go. Ready? (laughs) We can edit this in, like, post-production. All right. For Paul's friends in Rome, I'm totally fine. Uh, Fearlessness has replaced trepidation, and cowardice has turned to courage. And the Holy Spirit is on the move, and they're getting in on it. 
even if it means that they may, they may die. Okay, there we go. You can pause on that one. Okay, in the year 64 AD, which is only four years after the writing of this letter, so think 2018 is four years ago and now 2022, a fire will decimate two-thirds of Rome. And the emperor Nero will blame the Christians for it. Next slide. He'll arrest them in mass and have them crucified and burned alive. In the end, however, here we go. Paul believes that they're exactly all where they need to be, even if nothing has turned out exactly as they had imagined it for themselves. So again, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To be powerless is to be powerful in the spirit. And again, this is the logic of the upside down kingdom. And it's a little bit like the world that Alice discovers in Lewis Carroll's novel, Through the Looking Glass. Everything is reversed. Alice has to walk backwards in order to go forwards. She has to pass the cake before she cuts it, and she'll think best if she stands on her head. And that's the last slide. Thank you. In God's upside-down kingdom, the first are last, the least are the greatest, and death is life. In the calculus of the world as we know it, Paul's fortune is all loss. But in the calculus of the world as God would have it, Paul's experience is all gain. Now, every one of us here in this room, I imagine, has had an experience of powerlessness. For some of you, it may be the experience of aging or of being chronically ill in your body. It may be the experience of a lost opportunity that leaves you gutted. It may be the experience of a dysfunction in your family that you have no power to repair. Whatever it may be, you find yourself feeling powerless against forces that cause you to doubt the goodness of God and that threaten to turn you into the worst version of yourself. In Paul's circumstance, however, it causes him to feel joyful. And here again is my question, how? But before I try to answer this question, let's look at the second half of our passage. So while in the first half we glimpsed how gospel friendship involves a shared experience of the upside-down kingdom, in the second half we see how gospel friendship involves a non-jealous love for Jesus. While it's true that many Christians feel emboldened to talk about Jesus in Rome, other Christians in the city are doing so out of a desire to rub salt into the wound of Paul's predicament. In 1.15, Paul writes, it is true that some proclaim Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Now, what's really interesting about these two terms, envy and rivalry, is that they also occur together in Romans 1.29, where Paul says that those who behave this way will not, in fact, inherit the kingdom of God. And again, in 1 Timothy 6.4, where they describe false teachers fit only to be cast out. Here, however, Paul says... Don't worry about them. It's going to be fine, really. Now, what's happening here is that a group of people is spreading the gospel out of schadenfreude, which is that marvelously colorful German word that describes the experience of relishing the failure of another person. So, who are these people again? Well, they're not strangers to Paul. And they don't belong to another region of the empire. They're actually Christians who live in the very city of Rome. 
And while it's a little bit hard to determine who exactly they are, what is clear is that they feel no allegiance to Paul. He didn't bring the gospel to them. He established no churches among them. And he isn't one of their people. So you remember Paul's remark in 1 Corinthians 1 where he takes Christians to task for their intrafamilial skirmish? Where he says, one of you says I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided, he asks. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? It's a little bit of what's going on here in the churches in Rome. They have their factions throughout the city and Paul isn't liked by one of them. It's a group who may in fact believe that Paul is being punished by God by being put in prison while they freely travel about Rome telling people about Jesus. He's in prison, they say to each other, getting what he deserves. Now, this is not, of course, an unfamiliar reality for us today. For example, when Wheaton College experienced a very public controversy in 2016 where they were accused of being racist, lots of progressive Christians indulged in their own schadenfreude, getting what they deserve, they thought to themselves. But when Rachel Held Evans died suddenly in 2019, lots of conservative Christians indulged in their own schadenfreude, getting what she deserves, they thought to themselves. Or perhaps closer to home, our Anglican communion in North America is fraught by tensions between its members. Pardon the French, but it will not be uncommon to hear somebody in our communion saying something like, screw them and their way of being Anglican. We're going to show them. But Paul says to us today what he says to believers at Philippi. Don't do the faith in a competitive spirit. Don't look out just for your own people. Contend. Fight for the unity of the church. And really, whether the motivations of people are true or questionable, what does it matter, Paul asks? People are getting to know Jesus. That's what matters. And it isn't, of course, to say that real issues aren't at stake. They are. But still, don't become obsessed over those people, Paul writes. God will take care of things. Now, that's not actually how I would respond if I were in his situation. Seeing as I have a kind of lifelong love affair with anger, I would probably tweet something that says, you're idiots, all of you. And then I would hashtag it, hashtag you're idiots, all of you. <laughs> or like somebody from The Sopranos, I would have things taken care of, no questions asked which is sort of funny as a ridiculous sermon illustration, but I tell you what's not funny. What's not funny is the rage that sometimes boils up inside of me when I feel that I have been slighted by somebody or when I see somebody that I feel is doing something completely idiotic in Jesus' name. I get angry and I want to punish. But again, what Paul says to the Philippian believers in 60 AD, he says also to me and to you in the year of our Lord, 2022. Brothers and sisters, if you have gotten anything out of following Jesus, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. 
That's how Eugene Peterson translates Philippians 2, 1 and 2. And I think it's a good word for me and for you this day. The love of Jesus' brothers and sisters is a non-jealous love. If other people are experiencing God's blessings, don't resent it. If other people are experiencing failure, don't relish it. If other people are doing things out of false motives, don't try to play God on them. And if people are getting to know Jesus through them, try to be happy about it. I rejoice because of it, says Paul. But again, my question, how? How do you get here, Paul? Despite your experience of powerlessness, despite this mean-spiritedness from other Christians in the city, how are you able to say you feel joy, full stop? You're in prison, and people are taking advantage of you. How is it that you're able to say you have joy? Well, the answer, it seems to me, is that Paul has truly experienced the power of the living God to rescue him from a nightmare sin-warped version of himself. And he has experienced true gospel friendship as we see narrated throughout this entire letter. And it's what you and I need too, brothers and sisters. We need God to rescue us from the worst versions of ourselves and we need to experience deep-spirited friendship. And when we have experienced these things, our eyes begin to open to perceive the upside-down kingdom of God at work around us. And we become freed to love one another with a non-jealous love. And perhaps one of the gifts that we can give to each other over the coming months is the gift of stories of God's rescue. Such stories, of course, don't need to be dramatic or spectacular. They can be small and in-progress stories. But one of the things that all such stories will have in common with the brothers and sisters at Philippi is the experience of vulnerability. And what the Holy Spirit, I believe, is inviting you and me into to embrace in this season of our life as a community is the gift of vulnerability in gospel friendship. So to bring my sermon to, uh, to a close, here is my question to you, brothers and sisters. What if we at Church of the Cross became a community where gospel friendship became a distinguishing character of our life together? What if that is, we became vulnerable with each other at Church of the Cross in a way that we've perhaps never allowed ourselves to become? What if more specifically, you, shared a story with one another of God helping you to curb your temper ever so slightly with your own family members? What if you shared a story of God slowly delivering you from the powerful addiction to pornography or to food or to work? What if you shared a story of God lessening the intensity of jealousy that you feel towards others? Or of God breathing new life into a heart that has grown apathetic? Or of God meeting you in your loneliness? What if you shared a story with one another of God helping you to become just a little bit more gentle? Or of God healing you of traumas of the mind? What if you shared a story of God restoring just a smidgen of joy to a heavy heart? And what if lastly we also became just a little bit 
silly with one another. Also a mark of gospel friendship. On the front cover of your bulletin, I have this quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson who once said, it is one of the blessings of old friends that you can afford to be stupid with them. I like that. And what if you and I, as it were, became a little stupid with each other because we no longer felt self-conscious with each other, afraid of each other, embarrassed with one another because we were so free in Jesus with each other. What would happen if we became such a community marked by this kind of gospel friendship? I'll speak for myself. I think this would happen if I got to hear your stories and you got to hear my stories. It would probably make me a little less afraid and just a smidgen more brave to want to tell other people about Jesus. Not in the obnoxious way of my teenage years, but in a winsome way that caused people to become curious about who this Jesus is of this upside-down kingdom who makes people infectiously joyful in a way that confounds the calculus of the world as we know it. That's my prayer, friends, for me and for you this day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.